This is Blue Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. I'm pleased to introduce Anaya Bashir as my guest today. Anaya promotes healing by writing curricula for schools, developing children's literature, and teaching media-integrated, culturally responsive courses that are centered on social-emotional learning. She loves to share in learning communities that help people heal, cope, and overcome the social barriers dictated by our society. I'm so glad that Anaya was able to share her story and perspective with us here on Fluid Truth. So Anaya, welcome. Thank you. I would say that equity doesn't exist in the current American system. I also don't even refer to the American uh, quote unquote justice system as a justice system. Um, I sort of replaced that language to call it the American injustice system. Um, In my personal experiences uh, through family members and even with my own uh, just encounters with the law, I think that the American injustice system is doing exactly what it was designed to do, um, and that is to birth and uh, maintain inequity, uh, especially towards people of color and Black people specifically. Um, I've done a lot of research and studies and classes during my time at Wesleyan University, uh, not only on the carceral state, but just on the inequities that um, are experienced in the injustice system broadly. So I think that the injustice system doesn't only include, you know, the court system, the prison system, but it also includes our education system, our cultural narratives, our moral conceptions, and seeing how those moral conceptions and stories add to the continuation um, of the prison system and of the criminalization of Black people. Uh, definitely has taught me a lot about um, how I want to conduct myself in the world and how I hope to combat this injustice. So what was the the impetus that brought you to that place? Yeah, I think um, growing up Black in America and also growing up Black in a 95% um, Black city uh, has really shaped my cultural identity. So in colloquial settings and in my city, it was never really accepted that the police were good. Um, It was like common knowledge amongst my community that the police were there, not even a protector, um, but as a just there to uh, stop trouble. And in the process of quote unquote, stopping trouble, they would likely harm you in that process. So the, the most or the best advice that we got when handling uh, the justice system, quote unquote, was to stay away from it, was to not be involved in it at all, to not call, even if you needed it. Like if you needed the police, yeah, I guess you could call, but it was a last straw sort of thing. So I think growing up um, and also having family members who have been incarcerated and, and also having a lot of uh, just Black people and my family who have been harmed by the police, by the justice system, by the carceral state, was a really foundational 
part of that transition. Uh, but then I think being in a predominantly white setting and going to uh, high school and college in predominantly white settings and seeing how much um, my white peers benefited from this system definitely encouraged me to make that shift in my language. Um, I went to a very prestigious boarding school in New Jersey, and a lot of the students there um, had family members, dads specifically, and, and parents who were funding private prisons. And then so to be in spaces with people who held conservative beliefs um, and had very little respect for um, the lives of people that were deemed criminal and just hearing how they interact with the world and the freedom that they've had to be individuals um, and feel protected by a system really made me feel that imbalance a lot more. I think going from a space where everyone held the same beliefs around the police, not being a good force around the American injustice system, and then going to a place where people really believed in the American justice system um, really stirred that transition um, in language for me. Just made some reference to having been a Wesleyan student. Um, so was there a transition when you came to the university that you can speak to that really continued to inform your thought process here? I think a lot of things I felt deeply because of my, my family, because of, you know, my own experiences. I just didn't trust the American system. Um, and I had always been like an avid reader of like African-American history and African-American literature. So I had that in a way. But at Wesleyan, we had classes like the carceral state, how America became a prison state. And I had uh, articles with black prisoners from the 1800s. <laughs> like literally like they were born in the 1800s, came here as slaves and then experienced the freedom of slaves and became the first prisoner. Reading their documentation of the prison system and then also learning about the Atticus um, prison riots and all of these histories of resistance that has been true to black history um, really was empowering. I've always questioned a lot of things um, in my surroundings because I thought that a lot of our community and world was just unfair and unjust. So I, I never really uh, just accepted things. But one thing that I realized is that I never thought of prison reform as different from prison abolition. Um, so I wasn't really pushing the boundaries as much as I thought I was until I went to a space like Wesleyan. And I was like, oh, I never even thought of abolition as an option because the people in my community, even though they didn't trust this system, never thought of it as an option. I wasn't thinking beyond the boundaries of my community or, you know, thinking beyond the boundaries of thought that had been presented to me. And it was always important for me to um, dive deeper and, and just push my thinking in general. And it was a real moment for me. When you went off to university, you were able to be in a community that celebrated this diversity of thought and celebrated these other options. So tell me a little bit about what you consider 
these options to be? Yeah, I mean, personally, the only option I've been interested in learning more about is prison abolition, because I think I have a pretty clear understanding of prison reform and just reform movements in the injustice system in general. Uh, I think that is the theory rhetoric that I grew up on. So one of the only like futures that I see is just completely and radically changing the system. And I don't know how, but I do know the morals are baseline. I do know that there are morals that we all know are right. So pretty much prisoners have been pushed to this class of slavery where they're not even considered as humans first. And I think that that is the first problem with the system. It makes prisoners or people who break the law seem like they're abnormal and they're not a part of our community. And what they did was completely out of character when in reality, all of the people that are in prison are just symptoms of our community. It's symptoms of the bad that we've done being reflected back onto us in their actions. Um, so for me, I think that the whole system needs to be changed. Overall, I do just think that the revival of community and respect for individuals and showing individuals that they matter in our communities is really vital. Tell us a little bit about your take on restorative justice. Yeah, I think that a lot of the times I try to stay away from popular terms because it ends up being meaning different things for different people. Um, but in general, I think restorative justice is exactly what I was speaking about, about revitalizing community and centering healing. Um, I uh, would call it healing justice. Right now, um, there are a few scholars who are out that um, talk about healing justice. Angela Davis uh, is one of them. It's really pop. She's really popular. But her sister, Fanya Davis, also speaks a lot about this, especially because she's done work with a lot of um, African and indigenous healers to study their processes of helping families resolve conflict and then using that as the, the framework for restorative justice. At its core, restorative justice is a Black and indigenous practice. And restorative justice only works when there's a respect for each individual's role in the community and also the community taking responsibility for its impact on each individual. So I think that is the key to restorative justice is recognizing like if someone commits a crime, then that is also our fault as a community. Like what, what were we neglecting as a community that made this person go to this action? And Fanya Davis has a good quote. Um, this is just like roughly uh, sharing it. But right now, she says, right now we live in a system where we harm people who harm people to show that harming people is bad. And so now you're stuck in a negative feedback loop of harm. And that really resonated with me because I feel like the whole system in general is not concerned with making sure that the victim feels safe in the community again but is more concerned with calculating how much harm has happened and then inflicting it back on the person who caused the harm. One experience that I wasn't conscious for, but I think really hearing the story from my mother 
He initially shared it with me during the George Floyd um, riots. And I never knew about this story until that moment. (laughs) And that was pretty recent. But when she was pregnant with me, her and my father had gotten pulled over by the police. They asked him to step out. Um, They didn't give a reason for why they were pulling them over. Um, And my dad is pretty outspoken. He's like, why do I need to get out of the car? Like, you know, pretty much knowing where this was headed and how violent things can get once you step out the car and that sort of thing. And um, they ended up tasing him. And then a police officer looked at my mom and was like, oh, you think we did this because he's black? And then laughed. And it was like five police cars um, around. um, And she tells the story in a lot more detail. Um, And it's honestly hard for me to even recount this story. But hearing her share that and knowing how much anxiety she must have been feeling in that moment, it felt like the only American birthright that I have. You know, like in a way it felt like, oh, no wonder I've always had such a distrust. You know, like this was happening while you were pregnant with me. Stuff like that impacts the DNA. It impacts what you're passing on. Um, And I think that I'm interested, just as a side note, in the the effects that trauma has on DNA and how that's passed on. Because it is real and it is definitely something that I feel like is deeply ingrained in who I am. I went to very political schools, but at the same time, I was always very skeptical of everything. Um, And I think that a lot of that has to do with the experiences that my mother had encountered with racism and how she made it her effort to make sure that uh, me as an African-American woman, as a Caribbean-American woman, felt empowered and proud of my ancestry and proud of how I look and who I am um, and how I think. Um, My mom was an African-American studies major. So growing up, I literally had Black characters in my books she was playing brown skin in the car because one time I told her I like my brother's skin better than mine and he's a little bit lighter than me. Like it was just like very intentional moments of making sure that I felt whole even when the world is designed to make girls like me with my skin color feel like we are not whole or that we are lesser than or that, you know, we can be treated anyway. And I also have had experiences with um, family members in prison. And I just hate, you know, how controlling that, like how much like slavery it looks and it feels. So when someone from prison calls you, there's a whole, this call is from a federal prison or this call is from an ex prison. Like they're announcing it. Okay. And then the person says their name when they're supposed to say their name, but you can't even pick up the call until they say so. Like, I know that's something that nobody, a few people would really know about unless they've had that personal experience of having someone from prison call them. But you have to like wait until they're finished saying like, this call is recorded and this person's in prison. And they say it like six times, like this person's in prison. And you can't even talk to the person that your loved one, even though they're on the other line. So it's like, they are controlling every interaction that they can and and it it feels so much like slavery that no one would if you've been in a prison or at least visited someone in a prison you can't deny the similarities it's just very very blatant and 
controlling and restricting. My mom used to tell me this. I, we went to visit uh, a family member in prison and I was maybe seven or eight. And the guard would yell, one hug, one kiss. Like you can't hug or kiss more than once. Um, and I used to watch Winnie the Pooh a lot. And Eeyore used to go around like, not hot, not cold, just warm and breezy. And I just started like yelling, one hug, one kiss, just ridiculous. Yeah, so I think a lot of my personal experiences uh, combined with the cultural narratives that I see a lot definitely uh, made me angry for a while Um, because it's interesting, not many people talk about having relatives in prison or at least in my family, we don't talk about it because it's something to be ashamed of uh, or was presented as something to be ashamed of. And it's interesting to see the Black community laugh about prison and a lot of times we laugh in pain but like crack those jokes and do those things like even in my own family like hearing people make prison jokes around me I was just like uh (laughs) like I don't think it's funny like we have relatives there you know but the sort of it's like disillusionment it's like the it's a disconnect is what allows the system to continue the fact that we are able to find humor in it in a way but even the fact that we're able to separate ourselves uh, from their experiences and also just, just be like, yeah, they're a criminal. So that's why they're being treated that way. Like that's justified, um, is something that I hope to grow away from. Where are you moving now to what's next? How are you proceeding? Yeah, I think one, um, coming to terms with my anger and also, um, accepting it and not being upset like you know I think that it's important for me to feel through the anger because I think the anger is justified and that was a whole process for me I think that um maybe I was stuck in that for maybe four years I would say five well I mean once I was able to gain that consciousness and gain that language of the injustice and see exactly like the fact that there are theories written on my existence like this is like actually crazy that you have a history to track exactly what's happening to you know my uncles and my cousins and my father and my you know and my grandfather and so I think moving out of that was also just accepting that I can unlearn and relearn and and educate myself as a form of empowerment I think that's something that I've always held on to just because it's something I've seen in my own family. Uh, But even beyond that, I can focus my efforts and my career on healing. Um, And I think that is where my hope is, is that I just, I want to work with, or I do work with right now. um, But at the time, I was like, I think adolescents, like high schoolers need to be given the tools to not only talk about these things and fight these things, but also just the tools to feel empowered as full individuals. Because I think that that's the root of the problem is like people are not empowered by their own skill set. So I think the more people we can have out there who are working true to their purpose, true to their passions, true to their skill set, the more change um, we can create. And I do think that's pretty broad, but I, I, feel like I needed to encourage younger people and especially high schoolers because I feel like they're right at the precipice and they're 
they're entering the professional world and 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 creating their careers empowering them to really go after what matters to them so that they can be happy and not be pushed to commit crimes and 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 know how to help people and and really have the capacity to do good for others because they're doing good for themselves um it was really important to me my issue is with with the culture (laughs) the culture as a whole um that feeds the law and continues the law and is definitely a byproduct or, you know, they interact with each other. But I really do think that the cultural shift is what's really important for me because when people's mindsets shift, then they can even, like a lot of times people can't even see how the laws don't help, you know, (laughs) like uh, laws do help and they have helped people. Know, as an attorney, I see the law as this space of we have some rules in place. We have agreed upon these rules as a society. And as we push out these rules, it's intended to have the same effect on person A as it has on person B. We apply the law blindly. But now um, I came to that cl- conclusion many moons ago that even in the application we do have an issue or a challenge with its implications and how it's actually um, handed out. So we do have an issue with the society. We do have an issue with how it disparately impacts different communities. We do have an issue. And my challenge is not necessarily with the statutes and the laws and the policies and and the procedures, but it is on the execution of such rules and how we push them out into the society. The community itself is not taking any action or accountability in creating the safety that they wanna see. We all just kind of rely on this big system, like, oh, well, I don't have to, I don't have to handle that, I'm gonna just call the cops type of vibe, um, I think is a crisis in community. I think as a community, like, yeah, if you if you feel you need the reinforcement and you feel like you're in a dangerous situation, we should have people we can call to back us up. But at the same time, I think actively being involved in like the solution to the problem is really important. There is a lot of work to be done. There are a lot of issues to begin the conversation, to continue the conversation, to continue the work, to begin the work. There's a lot to do. What is your plan? Yeah, so right now I'm a founder of Holistic Wealth LLC, which creates a curriculum that focuses on mental wellness um, for youth, specifically for high school students, because I think that they're really left out of the conversation. In the education space, social-emotional learning is a really exciting and pretty new topic that's being explored and standards are being created for how teachers are teaching social-emotional wellness and learning. But a lot of the most, um, I would say experimental, but a lot of the most um, helpful mental health work is going into younger years. Um, So a lot is happening in the elementary school space where they're teaching students how to meditate and how to identify their emotions. And I think that that's really important to start that work there. Um, But I do think that high schoolers also need to have 
uh, programs developed for them that continues that work. Um, and right now it's introducing it to a lot of these high schoolers. Uh, so that has been my main focus. I'm heading to Harvard University in the fall to get my master's in education uh, with the focus on spiritual wellness um, and just creative art spaces as well. So I'm hoping to combine like creativity and art with healing work um, so that it can be interesting and useful and empowering for young people and just adults in general. Congratulations on that. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for talking with me. And it's nice to have that youthful position as it relates to perspectives. Perspectives are everything. And I, I believe that's what it is. When we get a lot of different voices, we get diversity of thought. We get diversity of age. We get diversity of, of race. And after we can contemplate change, we can make change. And I really appreciate just having conversations like this. Because I think, yeah, it, it pushes the perspective. And that's really what's important. I know that is right. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our executive producer, David DeRoche. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to all of our podcasts on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, Find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is qupodcasts at qu.edu. On the next show, I'll be sitting down with James Fulton as he shares his inspirational story of perseverance. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.